Hello, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the We'll Preach for Food podcast. My name is Doug, I'm pastor at Faith Lutheran Church in Shelton, Washington. It's a congregation of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Today's podcast is about sin, specifically about racism, because last week a precious child of God named George Floyd was its latest victim. This week marked 100,000 deaths in the United States as a result of the coronavirus, and 40 million Americans are unemployed, but it was the death of George Floyd that sparked protests and demonstrations across the nation, many of them now turning violent. Racism is a sin that has infected the United States for 400 years. When Africans were first kidnapped from their homelands by white Europeans, brought to the North American continent to serve as slaves. During this pandemic, it has become clear that sin is very much like a virus. The strain of sin known as racism has an extraordinarily high rate of infection, a high rate of mortality. There are few therapies that can effectively minimize the symptoms, and the only vaccine ever found to work involved dying on a cross, followed by a regular protocol of water, bread, and wine. I don't have answers. I do have a Bible story to tell, a confession to make, and a few resolutions to share. Let us pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, the first verse. It's the first time a precious child of God murdered a precious child of God. Genesis chapter 4, the first verse. It says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will it not be accepted? But uh, But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. But Cain said to his brother Abel, hey, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Two brothers and a murder. What actually leads to this violent act is unclear. We don't know who started it and why, not that, that, that any of that matters. Farmer versus rancher, really? 
sibling rivalry? And do you really think God had anything to do with this? A brother is consumed by anger at his brother, and as a result, he kills his brother for no good reason, as if there ever was a good reason. And this kind of violence has been part of the human condition from the beginning, and it continues to this day. The matter of George Floyd is not about law enforcement or looters. It's not about the press or the president. It's about sin, sin as old as human existence itself. Murder is sin to be sure, but then there's the reason, the motivation for the act of murder, the root sin. And this is what God tries to warn Cain about, that sin was crouching at the door waiting to consume him. But in the story, the warning is not enough, and Abel is dead, Cain is cursed, Eve and Adam grieve the death of one son and the exile of the other. And this is the deadly reality and consequence of sin. Now, those police officers sinned to be sure. But it is the root sin, racism, that has been crouching at the collective door of this nation for centuries. God has warned us that it lurks, that it's wrong, that we must learn how to master it lest it consume us. But God's warning in our story continues to go unheeded. And now George Floyd is dead. The streets are filled with unrest. And this is the deadly reality and consequence of our sin. I'm a racist. I am in bondage to sin and cannot free myself. I'm racist positive. I have the racist virus in my system. I haven't been tested. I might not exhibit all the symptoms all the time, but I've had so much exposure to racism my whole life long that I am doubtless a a carrier. That's how viruses like sin work. So I'm a white, male, cisgendered Lutheran pastor. I grew up in the 1970s in Kirkland, Washington, before Microsoft. There was one girl of color at my elementary school. Her name was September George. We were a progressive Christian household, and I was taught that all people are created equal. But I also learned from exposure to the world around me that black men weren't smart enough to play quarterback in the NFL, The shows on TV showed heroes that looked like me while women were helpless, Native Americans were savages, Asians were cunning, and people with dark skin of African descent, well, they were lazy, violent, and they simply needed the benevolent order provided by white people with land and power. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-ay. And I've had real conversations with people who informed me that black skin was the mark of the curse given to Cain for murdering his brother Abel, who apparently was white. I've seen countless depictions of the blonde-haired, fair-skinned Jesus adorning fellowship halls and Sunday school rooms. And have you ever noticed how the white robes worn by Lutheran pastors, many stylishly featuring a hood, bear a remarkable resemblance to the garments worn by members of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, there are therapies for the racism virus, and I've practiced and received them over the years, and it's managed my symptoms. But these have certainly not eliminated the virus from my my system. Going to church helped. 
uh, of the many sermons that I heard my dad preach, I do still remember one in, in which an African tribe understood that Jesus looked like them, not like the white missionary who had introduced Jesus to them. And my education helped. I learned about the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., about Rosa Parks, and about Malcolm X. I protested apartheid in South, in South Africa in my college days. I read black liberation theology from James Cone and Alan Bosack of South Africa. <laughs> and I've practiced racial distancing for most of my adult life. Choosing to live in Montana, Enumclaw, and Shelton, Washington. And I work for the Lutheran Church, the whitest denomination in the United States. I can think of only a handful of parishioners of color in almost 30 years of ministry. Am I a racist? Well, how would I know if I wasn't? And when a black child of God is killed in Minneapolis by a white child of God, or maybe four of them, I am so far removed from the struggle, so far from the front lines of racism, so insulated and so unaware of my own racism that I really don't know how to react. So maybe I'll include something about it in the prayers of the church. Maybe I'll preach a sermon about how we're all sisters and brothers in Christ. Maybe I'll use a PowerPoint slide that depicts Jesus with dark skin or share the YouTube video called White Jesus, which is really quite poignant and funny. But then what? Go back to my sermon series on the mission of God as spelled out in Matthew 10. Make plans to resume public worship and small group activities on site as we enter into phase two and three. Approve a new constitution. Come up with a new landscaping design that everyone can agree with. Host Zoom Bible studies and call members of the church who might need extra attention. But meanwhile, how many millions have fallen victim to this racist virus? It continues to spread as that one act of violence in turn has now led to a new outbreak of violence across the country. White folk like me lament an unjust killing, then quickly condemn the outpouring of rage and grief that turns violent. We call them thugs. We call on these criminals to practice nonviolent protest instead, you know, like Martin Luther King Jr. did, except we killed him, so he can't help us. Well, maybe there could be a nonviolent movement that simply lifts up a universal truth that black lives matter. No, nope, we don't like that one. Well, could NBA basketball players wear anti-racism t-shirts while they warm up before a game? No. Maybe NFL football players could kneel respectfully at the beginning of a game to protest excessive police brutality against men of color. No, you can't do that one either. So when every peaceful avenue is exhausted and rejected, when those men and women are exhausted and rejected, when the anger and grief of 400 years of slavery and oppression boils over, how quickly the story now shifts to outrage at the victims who are thugs and criminals who are violent and lazy and the white people with land and power who need to swoop in with guns and gas to restore order, put them in their place and lock them up. After all, it's for their own good. 
And the cycle continues so that six weeks from now, there'll be another shooting of a supposedly threatening-looking black child of God in a white neighborhood by a white child of God who was just trying to keep his neighborhood safe from those thugs and gangs he's heard so much about. And we'll wonder how something like this could happen in the year 2020 again. Folks, I don't know what to do. But I am fairly convinced that whatever approach we're taking isn't working for anyone. I refuse to play the blame game. I won't blame the victims or the media or the president or Antifa or NASCAR fans or suburban soccer moms. No, I'm going to take a hard look in the mirror because all of us are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. This one's on us. This one's on me. I have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and by what I have left undone. I have not loved God with my whole heart because I have not loved my neighbor as myself. This is on me. So before I point a finger at anyone, before you point a finger at anyone, you had better take a real good look in the mirror and the sin that has been crouching at your door for a lifetime or twelve. Can you be so sure that you did better than Cain against the sin crouching at your door? Can you be so sure that the racism that you have been exposed to all your life has not mastered you? Really? Well, maybe it is just me. In which case, I ask for your prayers and your patience because I have a sin problem. And for the love of God, I got to do something. The first thing I need to do is admit that I have a problem, that in fact I am the problem. The Bible says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's in 1 John, the first chapter. And even if I don't manifest symptoms of the racism virus, I have most certainly benefited from the racist system in which I live. Meanwhile, my efforts of racial distancing have not served the needs of my neighbors with brown skin. I am poorer for not having more friends of color and diversity. My silence feeds the violence on the streets of Seattle and Minneapolis and Washington, D.C. today. I am in bondage to sin and cannot free myself. But the passage goes on to say, if I confess my sin, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive my sin. The grace of God is the only power that can free me from the bondage to sin. Jesus, the Son of God, was profiled and targeted by the government, by the press, and by the religious leaders, who then sent law enforcement officers to beat him to the brink of death and then nail him to the cross, Crucifixion kills a person by slowly preventing them from being able to take a breath. And so with a loud cry, I can't breathe, Jesus went limp and died. See for yourself in Mark 15, verse 37. And I read that again, and I ask myself, how many times do I need to witness the crucifixion before my heart finally breaks. This is how we know what love is, the Bible says. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. 1 John 3.16 It is the death of Jesus that sets me free, the Bible says, 
so that I can have the faith and hope and courage to lay mine down for my neighbor's sake. I don't even know what that means, but I am tired of avoiding the mirror. And I suspect that some of you are too. And I can no longer thank Jesus for the price he paid for me on Sunday morning and then turn my back on my aching, grieving, dying sisters and brothers of color. Some friends I know have a simple quote hanging on their refrigerator. Begin anywhere, it says. And that is what I pledge today. And I invite people of faith to do as well. Begin anywhere. A first step. A step of faith. And so having confessed my sin to God, trusting in God's mercy to forgive my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness, I pledge these six actions. I will pray daily for the month of June and then for as long as I can muster beyond that for God to show me ways that I manifest racism in my own life and ministry, for ways I can repent of this sin and ways that I can work to remedy the effects of racism in my community, my church, my nation, and the world. Second, I will pray for and open myself to pursue a friend of color for the sake of my own soul. Third, I will pursue learning and insights from theologians and thinkers who are women and men of color and diverse backgrounds and share their perspectives and insights into the gospel in my teaching and preaching. Number four, I'm going to ask our worship leaders to consider our language of faith to make sure that the metaphors, images, and words that we use in worship glorify God and honor our neighbors, all of our neighbors. Number five, I'm going to ask the Bridges to Conversation Task Force of this congregation to come up with a way by which our community can have an open dialogue on issues of race and injustice. It might need to be later in the summer or the fall before we can do it, but let's get something done. And number six, I'm not going to wear a white robe to lead worship again until we figure something out. For the next year, I will wear black when I lead worship because whiteness does not equal holiness and blackness does not equal evil. Black is holy too. So every time you see me not wearing a robe, it will serve as a reminder to us all that we have a serious sin problem, racial injustice. You and I will be reminded every week of our responsibility and calling to heal, reconcile, work for justice, and build community with people of every nation, tribe, and tongue, every single precious child of God. And we will, in this small way, break out of a pattern that reinforces the racist stereotypes we have pledged to combat. Is this a silly gesture? Then help me come up with something better. I invite dialogue and discussion of these matters. I urge prayers for the healing of our nation and for the forgiveness of our national besetting sins. I support efforts and forums that promote peace and reconciliation. I open myself to new relationships with people of color. And I covet your prayers for me, listener, to preserve me from fear, from apathy, from relapse, and from the sin that crouches at my door. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Christ, have mercy on me, a racist. God, have mercy on us all for the sake of Jesus Christ, by the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the We'll Preach for Food podcast. For more information about faith, you can go to our website, www.faithshelton.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts or any other way you listen to podcasts. If my reflections today were helpful for you, please share them with a friend. Discuss them with your family. And I'll close with the words of Pastor Lenny Duncan from his book uh, called Dear Church. Dear Church, the only way to be truly revolutionary is to trust in the resurrection. We have to be willing to risk life, limb, and career for the expansion of God's kingdom here on earth. Only our hope in the resurrection, God's ability to bring life out of death, empowers us to take these risks. We are an army of love that needs to wage peace on this world. We are being called, invited, centered, forged, refined, and loved into being the next generation of saints to carry the cross to Calvary. I pray that my life will be spilled out for this cause, and I pray yours will be too. We, we are the answer, church. We are the answer to the question, is God real? We are the resounding yes that every mountain will shout. Dear church, rise up. Amen. <laughs>